Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next levels. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Carrie Kirpin, co-founder and managing director of Likeable Media, a women-led digital agency that she sold to 10 Pearls back in 2021. She is the author of Work It, Secrets for Success from the Boldest Women in Business. She's a columnist at Inc. and Forbes. She's been featured in The Times, ABC World News, Fox, CNBC, just an all-around total badass. Excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Alex, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I love it. I love it. So I want to get in right away so, where I would like to start because you you feel a, a little bit of a, an interesting curiosity for me. So we've had a lot of tech founders, a lot of product based founders, and you have run Likeable, which is a service based business. So we haven't had anyone running this before, scaling it up before. So excited to dig into this. My current business is a is a service-based business, so maybe I'm a little I can be a little selfish here with some of my questions, but I think that based on the the interest that we've gotten over the last couple of weeks from from our audience is they want to learn more about service-based businesses that are scaling and ultimate exiting. So, which is right in line with what you do or what you've done. So, where I would like to start is right about the time that you became CEO and how you kind of found product market fit. Because I know that you didn't start a CEO, but you became CEO. That's right. I was a co-founder. I founded Likeable with my husband, Dave. And it was actually pretty fun because I we worked, we ran a business together. It worked really well because he was a visionary. I was an executor. We ran an agency as a basic services business, you know, like the, the way you typically would. And because Dave was so obsessed with like, let's start a SaaS, let's do something that could scale quickly. We separated what would then become a SaaS business from the services business. Okay. And I was left to run that. And when I was left to run that, I was a little bit conflicted because I wanted to scale. And I wanted to build something fast growing and exciting. And, and I felt like services businesses got a really bad rap with that. You know, like they, they really were seen as lifestyle businesses. You couldn't scale it. You couldn't productize it. And I was really determined to do something different. And at the time it was a social media agency. We coined the term content as a service <laughs> and we, we really said, okay, we're going to, we're going to productize our offering. Oh, say hello. We're going to productize our offering and we're going to really create something that can be scalable and repeatable just as if it were a software business. And we were able to scale that way, although you still have the challenges and benefits of a service-based business. And yeah. of course, the challenges challenges are that it's a people business, right? Yeah. And the benefits are that it's a people business. There's really no expenses other than people. Right. So it's 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 a, you're you're easily able to scale up or back and be as profitable as you need in any moment. But of course, it's all about the human touch. So that's a challenge and a benefit, depending on how you look at it. That's really interesting because a, lo a lot of times it's just people think about service-based business as, oh yeah, it requires a lot of people, that's a more of an expense, that's more of a burden. But it's interesting how you actually are flipping it. Yes, that still exists, but also you can 
you can move that up and down to be able to create more profitability as you need without losing anything. Of course. And you invest millions in a tech business that could go nowhere and you have no idea and it's a huge risk. And if you figure out how to scale a services business, then your only risk really is ultimately people, right? Yeah. Which you can expand and contract as needed. And especially if you yeah. do the right things by your employees, you can, you can do that with grace and you can really grow and be profitable and build a big business. That's the thing is like so many services businesses are stuck thinking that it's going to be founder led forever. It's going to be all about you forever. And there's so many things you can do to truly scale. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So you're, you're splitting, you split the companies apart and you, you run yep. the service based side. Yep. And how did you, I, I would imagine that the the focus of scale is kind of in the back of your mind at, at really all points in time. How did you go from, hey, I'm leading this service-based business to even thinking about scale? Because it's, to your point, founder-led sales, very people-heavy. Like, what, what were some of those things that you kind of figured out in order to even create the ability to scale? Yeah, so the, the thing that sparked the idea that a services business could, could really scale or I could do things differently was when I read Built to Sell by John Warlow, which I recommend to every Great. service business out there. Awesome, awesome book, Built to Sell. It's all about a guy who like does PR and all this stuff and, and his advisor says, no, you're going to focus on one thing and one thing that you do best. And you're going to create scalable, repeatable processes for it. And you're going to hire salespeople for it. And you're going to scale that way. And it's all about this dream acquisition. It's like a fable. It's, it's really good. Yeah. And okay. I found it really inspiring. And so what we decided to do was take a look at what we did best. So the way we did that was we interviewed our customers. We interviewed our staff. And we sort of looked at our competitors. And we looked at what do we do better than anyone else? What What is it that we do better than anyone else? And we came up, that was how we first came up with our brand promise, which was we knew that we were faster as a social media agency than sort of these big agency behemoths. Yeah. We knew that we were the smartest in social. We knew that we really knew social media. At this time, everybody was saying they knew social media. We had been doing it forever and knew some of the nuances that because it was all we focused on, we knew we knew it better than anyone else. And then the last bit that we knew is that we were a pleasure to work with. We focused really on service and with a name like likable, you kind of have to. So we came up with the brand promise, faster service from the smartest in social with likability guaranteed. Once we had that, we had to think about how could we productize that? How could we take that and turn it into a product that people could sell, right? People at our org. And so we came up with something called Content Cube. There were three areas of our business that we did really well. We did consulting on social media. We did creation of content. And we helped connect that content to the audience. Each area of the business had a process, had a price, and was a product. So even though businesses got something that was not templated. Businesses got a, a consultative, unique approach and creative is unique and all of it is it's custom. Yeah. The process itself was productized and the pricing was productized. So it allowed us to scale faster. It allowed salespeople to have conversations and in a way that they couldn't have if everything was bespoke. 
And so I think that that was really what helped us. And we also changed a little bit of the billing model. We created something called the content credit system, which was about how we charged for content. Instead of paying for hours the way you would on an agency and a services business, we charged what we called content credits. You would purchase a certain number of credits and the credits equated to types of content. And you could use those credits in a month or you could roll them over. It was really like very a fun and different way to calculate your social media content and, and equate it to value. Yeah. We priced by deliverable, really, versus by the hour. And that, that also well, helped us. We'll, we'll get to deliverables for sure. Yeah. So this is really interesting because this is much different than most people on how they think about businesses. It's usually yeah. like... Hey, I, you know, I, maybe I lost my job or I decided to go off on my own. I wanted to be a freelancer and create my own thing. Somebody asked me for a project. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. And then somebody else asked for me a project and I'm like, yeah, I could probably do that. And all of a sudden I got a service-based business. Yep. And what I'm hearing from you is you actually took everything and you said, Hey, let's pause for a minute and let's do some strategic thinking about what I have, what we're the best at. What is what what we've been asked for, and look at it and go, hey, what can we actually do in any kind of repeatable way? There's a lot of things that you could have done. There's a lot of these things that could have done, but the key is is to find this productized approach. And it's interesting how you actually started with brand. You started yes, with I did those three kind of breakdowns, and then you went into the productized approach. Yeah, because it's who you are is what's going to differentiate you. And, you know, I always talk about, you know, sort of every every professional service business needs to have some kind of secret sauce, right? Yeah. You're not going to have a proprietary technology. You're a services business. So right. what makes you unique? And the idea is you have to find something that is real enough that when you say it, you believe it because there are a million agencies out there that say they're creative. There are a million agencies out there that say they're smart. How do you actually quantify who you are and yeah. your brand. And I think that to me, that was key. And I also wanted to say, you said, you said something very interesting there about when most people go into a services business, like they're not planning to scale. And I think I was the exact same way. I mean, we started the business because I wanted more time at home and it just sort of, when we realized that we had something there and you realize it's like this valuable asset that could be beyond you, that's when you can take it to the next level. It's very, very exciting. That realization is so exciting. It's, I, I've been, I've been doing this for about three years now and it's, I'm, I'm constantly focusing on that, that productization piece yep. and it's not easy. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly questioning, Hey, should I go over here? Or should I go over there? How did you, it, you, you make it sound easy, but I know that it wasn't. So you, you look at it and you say you're faster, you're smartest, best service. And then you start to productize. So you can you can have faster, smartest, and service be a number of different things. How did you kind of go from, hey, I wanted to work and have a little bit more flexibility at home to how did you actually get to the point where you had these productized offerings from consulting, creating, and then and then being able to connect? Like, was there some kind of process that you were like, hey, here's here's 10 things or here's 50 things that we're good at and let's figure out some way to narrow it down to two or three? Yeah, so we did, well, first of all, when we started, we did whatever anyone asked us to do. <laughs> do you want to do a grand opening at a grocery store? Sure. You want to do, we were, we were actually a word of mouth marketing agency and we just kind of went, I'm going to put you down, okay? 
and we just we just sort of went and then when social media happened it really became a bigger thing and we just sort of took off so we just did everything related to social media it was when we became mature enough that it was like, okay, we can't handle, Dave and I, my husband and I can't handle this on our own anymore. We have to hire people. We have to do this. That's when, when the risk sort of became more because we were hiring people, we had a heavier payroll, all that. That is when we felt like, wow, we really need some predictability, some scalability, some, some consistency to this business that we did not have when we were just like, sure, we'll do this. Sure. Okay. We'll try this. You know, you had to be intentional. And the other, the other piece was if it didn't fit within our repertoire of like what we productize, we had to say no. That was one of the hardest parts in scaling is like we used to do everything. And then we'd yeah. say, no, sorry, we don't do that anymore. And that was like very painful. When we were figuring out if we were faster, smartest, et cetera, we plotted out every service offering we did. We looked at which one of them could be most easily taught and we indexed that against which one is most valuable to the customer. So we looked for things that could be taught that were valuable. And that is how we got to the content cubed offering. If I recall, it was something yeah. to that effect. I know you look at what's valuable to a consumer, to a customer, and then what can be taught. It can't just be you that does yeah. it. No, that's really interesting because the, that process is a place that I see so many people get hung up on. Yeah. And, you know, when someone's going to throw some money at you and say, hey, I got this project, can you do it? And you know you can do it. And you know yep. you would do a great job. But you, you really should be saying no because you need to go find another opportunity or another project that looks just like the other three that you have. That's really, really challenging. And so when you look at it, that discipline of saying, here's taught, here's here's kind of valuable, it's got to meet that intersection. It kind of gives you the ability or, or maybe helps you with that discipline to be like, this is not what we do anymore. Yeah, and I think some of the biggest enemies of long-term value is short-term gain. Like if you take the money that's quick, that's there, that's a distraction, it can turn you away from building something bigger. And it's very, very hard to do. Listen, uh, you know, we had young kids when we were building this business. It's very hard not to take every single piece of business in front of you. But when you practice that discipline, you are in it for the long haul. Yeah. And it, you just, you have to be committed to it. It's hard though. It is really hard. I mean, as somebody who raised three kids on a services business, as really the, the primary source of income for the entirety of the business. It was definitely hard to be disciplined. Definitely hard. So how did you move? So let's, let's fast forward a little bit. So you have your product type yep. offerings, you have these three yep. consulting, creating, and then connecting. Yep. I'm, I'm going to summarize those. And we talk about being able to go from founder-led sales into being able to move out of that that transition, that's another yeah. huge hurdle that a lot of people just get so nervous about that they're like, I can't release the reins. But yes. talk through a little bit about how you first identified, hey, it was time to make this transition. And then like what did what did what did the next steps look like, including that that first hire? Okay, so we had a lot of hits and a lot of misses in this area. So I love sharing about this. I've done everything from hiring straight up product salespeople to taking an intern and teaching them everything I know. And what worked for me was something in between. Okay. 
you for a services business, I think you need, it's a consultative sale. Even when you're productizing, you have to show that you know what you're talking about. So I needed somebody who understood social media, who acted more as a consultant or an advisor than like sort of a heavy salesperson. So what we did was we focused on content to drive leads, a lot, a lot of content. And that was podcasting, that was video, Facebook watch shows, that was white papers, all, you know, every type of content you can imagine. We would get interest and we would network, you know, at, at events, mm -hmm. get every type of interest we possibly could also grew through a ton through word of mouth. Cause when you do good work, that's the best way to grow. Right. Of course. So it's certainly the, the way to start, but when you're really looking to scale, you know, we used content to grow. And then once we got the lead in, we used a subject matter expert to help convert. I found that productized salespeople were a little too quick for a consultative type sale, an agency yeah. type sale of that size. And so I found that somebody who could build trust, somebody who knew what they were talking about did really well. I did for a while. I had account managers who actually managed accounts, act as salespeople, but then I felt there wasn't enough focus on sales. So I ultimately pulled a couple of account managers who really knew social, had them focus on sales, had an inbound lead driver, had them go to some events and that worked really well for us. Okay, so to kind of unpack that, then what what I'm hearing is you started with essentially someone who could do like top of the funnel. Right. You could just say, hey, what are the signals to be like, hey, there's a problem here. We might be able to help kind of generating of the leads. Right. And that same person can kind of work through the process. But then you actually had a second person, subject yes. matter expert, who knew social really, really well and could come in and kind of talk the technical language, talk the, you know, the, the five, six, seven, eight, ten layers down type language to be like, this is exactly what we do, how it works, that type of thing. That's exactly right. So you could look at it like hunter gatherer. And sometimes the hunter was marketing. And sometimes the hunter was just somebody who was very connected and hired in the space, worked all different ways. But most important for me was actually the person who converted. It was who the touch point was from likable that could convince these buyers that they, you know, we knew what we were talking about and we yeah. really were experts. If we're going to say we're the smartest in social, you can't have somebody who, you know, is not active on social media talking to you about this or who doesn't understand the nuances of paid advertising and how it works. Yeah. You know, you can't have someone working with an alcohol brand saying, oh, and when you advertise on TikTok, when they can't advertise on TikTok, you know what I mean? So it's like it, you have to know certain things. And for me, that's what worked really well and built trust. So what did what did that first what did that first non non founder hire look like that you got right? Because what you're talking about is some specific profile criteria to be able to really really get that profile right. I mean, you had a couple of swings and misses, and then you dialed in with these two different people. How how did you how did you figure that how did you figure that piece out through trial and error? Oh, it was just a ton of trial and error. It was it was a lot of misses. It was hiring people and having it be a complete disaster. It was sitting with, you know, zero sales for a quarter or two and, and being like, oh my gosh, this is way off. Yeah. It was understanding the length of the sales cycle. It was understanding the customer acquisition costs with marketing. It was really getting into the data and allowing yourself the time for that data to develop. 
You see, for me, what I think happens with founders, especially in a services business, you're so anxious about cash flow, right? You're building this. It's, it's you know, you're so anxious. You, these, these are not funded businesses. So you're sitting there. If one thing doesn't work for two seconds, you pull it. So you have to have enough time and the stomach to develop the data. And for me, that's been key to my success. It's not that I don't make quick decisions. I do. Yeah. But... You know, I trust my gut, but I also rely heavily on data and give something time to work before I'm too erratic. And I think as founders, we can tend to be very erratic because it's hard when it's your money in the business. Very, very hard to when you to when you talk money. about time. Yeah. What what is that? What does that mean? Is that days? Is that weeks? Is that months? Because I would imagine oh, that you've spent a lot of time strategizing around. I'm going to make this bet. And I agree with you that says people spend all this time, they make this bet, and then three seconds later they're like, nope, we're making a different bet. And you're saying give this time. What does that time horizon look like? Well, it's a mix, right? So first of all, I believe with people you know pretty quickly whether or not someone's going to work. But that being said, you, if you make a commitment, you want to make sure that you're looking at the data to make sure that the commitment's there. How many sales calls is this person making? What's happening? Are you attending one to see where the miss is? And you just sort of look. It's the same thing. Like I, I, I did a podcast. It took me probably two years before I generated any revenue from that podcast. And ultimately it doubled the size of my business and was responsible for the entire, the entire network that I had of women that invested in likable as clients. Wow. So that was a long tail commitment. So with people, a lot of it is gut. You know, you know pretty fast, and they know too. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of open communication. But with when you're trying things, especially in marketing, like it helps to really take some time and 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 trusting your gut. Like I knew with that podcast that that was going to hit, and I knew it was going to take a while. So yeah. I just went for it, and I, I I had the stomach for it. I did over 250 episodes. It was wow. nuts. And it was a long All right, time. I got a long way to go. <laughs> you know, you know how hard this is. Like, yeah. it's really hard. You find the guests, you get them on, you prep them. You you know, it's a lot yeah. of work. Yeah. But ultimately, that helped. And then not only when I started the podcast, I was able to pass it on to another thought leader in my organization, and they ran a podcast that was very successful. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be just you. I guess my point is you just, you know, you, if you, if you are in a position where you've built a business as a founder and it's gotten to any point of success, chances are your gut is good. Yeah. So trust your gut, but back your gut up with the data. It's good advice. That's when, when you look back at kind of figuring out that this sales approach was like a two prong two two person type approach. What, what advice would you kind of give yourself looking back? Would you, would you change it? I mean, a, a lot of it was trial and error and experience and you, you know, you had a gut and you had a thought around one thing and you tried and you had another thought and so on. And is, when you look back at trying to figure out what's the right mix, do you think there's anything that you would have done differently as far as kind of accelerating that learning to get to that two person pronged approach? I don't, well, it's hard to say I would do anything differently when I'm happy with the result, right? Of course. But I think one thing I might have done, I think I was very focused on like a need to hire salespeople. And I questioned my own gut about that. 
like I knew that a traditional salesperson probably wouldn't work in this model. And I was right. But I hired again, time and time again, salespeople until I learned that lesson. And so I probably would have just learned that lesson earlier, which is I need thought leaders in the space who really are subject matter experts who are unafraid of sales. They might not call themselves a salesperson. They are not uncomfortable talking about money. They're not uncomfortable. Right. Right. They're not uncomfortable talking about money. They're comfortable talking about money. And there's somebody that you could mold into like a great leader. You know, I yeah. think it, to me that that's what I saw and continue to see. Yeah. Now it's, it's interesting that you're really articulating that piece because I use a, I use a hiring scorecard and this is what I, yeah. I share with all my, my clients is what are the attributes that you're looking for? And you're, you're hitting on so many of those where it's like, you're not a salesperson, but you can do kind of salesperson related things, right? You're not anti-money. You can talk about money and it doesn't make you nervous, but it's not like, hey, I want to go make a billion dollars in commission tomorrow and beat the street. And so there's, there's specific attributes that you're looking for. That's one of the things that I always push so hard on is, do you actually know who you're hiring or looking for? Because if you're not, you could go and, and convince yourself, hey, we need a salesperson or we need this right. person over here. And, and then it takes you longer to get to where you want to go. Yes. And having worked in a sales background, I ran before Likeable, I ran a radio station sales team. And I know from experience that like one out of 10 are really, really work really well. And the other nine, not always, they can be a little full of it. So mm. it's, it's really about finding the right people and the right culture fit for your org and somebody who, who understands your business. If you're in a services business, they have to understand the services you offer well. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. How, how long did it take you to figure out that subject matter expert side? Because I would imagine top of the funnel, a little bit more direct, a little bit more clear cut as far as like, what does the role look like? Hey, go look for these pain points, this person, this industry, and so on. But a subject matter expert, if they have any real knowledge of this, they could they could play the game and say, hey, I know more than I actually am letting on. And you obviously know your stuff inside and out. That release of control to say you're going to handle the most important part of the sales process as far as conversion. How did you get over the hump? Because that don't let me lead you to water, but I, I bet you're the subject matter expert in the very beginning. And then, and then you hired for it. Well, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, I did it until it was too much. I remember, I remember taking calls from cruise ships and everywhere, you know, I, I was two young kids. And You're always everything done, I, no matter what. Yes. Yes. I think probably what happened was a mix. Like, I think I discovered it and then I tried to convince myself otherwise. So I had an amazing hire who was a subject matter expert who worked in, in sales for us and grew to do lots and lots of things and was amazing. And then when she left, I said, Oh no, you know what? I'm going to go in the direction of salespeople. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Had some salespeople that didn't work. Then I went back and ended up hiring a president who essentially was me in sales form and did very well. Then she wanted to scale and hired an outbound sort of lead funnel, lead gen thing, which failed miserably. And then I started selecting people at my org who worked in different areas, who never even thought about sales, who were great and said, Hey, do you want to try this? Like you're already here, you know, the org, you know, the company, 
are you interested in trying something? And I would mentor them and get them to where they needed to be. And that was very successful because they knew the organization. They loved the organization. They understood what we do because they did it. I've had art directors work in sales, account managers, yeah. lots and lots of people. And they've had very, very fulfilling careers with that. And it changes their life yeah. because once you've done sales, you could do anything. Yeah. Now you could be an entrepreneur. You could go work anywhere. It, it does. It really does. Yeah, it really opens it up. That's interesting. How when you when you think about bringing these people in from other parts of the business, you mentioned that you had hired salespeople before they didn't work out. That takes that takes a blow to not only your ego but also you know the the cash flow right the the bank account of saying yeah. hey this person didn't walk work out it's not like you know i have this this box of widgets and then tomorrow it's the exact same bo box of widgets and i just continue to go down the same path that 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 is essentially losing part of your product when when person when a person leaves your company how did you how were you able to deal with that were you did you change like your business models and how people pay you? Is that like, how are you able to ad adapt in such a way to be able to kind of weather the storm? No, I think I hired, if I pulled someone from a different department, I would replace a billable resource. And then when I brought them over, I mean, a salesperson is an investment against future revenue. And so if you say you're going to pay a salesperson X, they hopefully will generate Y. Yeah. When you hire a salesperson that doesn't work, you spend X and you don't get Y. So the trick is knowing pretty quickly whether or not they are either going to work and you're going to bet on them, even if nothing's there yet, or they're not. With salespeople, you have to be very quick in deciding that. And there are many salespeople who did work, who at Likeable didn't generate anything for a couple quarters. You know, like it took a while. And if you know, and that's where the gut comes in, right? So it's yeah. a mix of gut and data. It's like, okay, this person has what it takes. I know it. And it's not that I've ever missed with that, but I think in general, as an entrepreneur, you know the grit that sales takes. And so you can pick up on whether or not someone has that. Yep. And has the goods. Yep. No, I, yes, I 100% I understand. While While you're going through this, this process, you're adding these people, you're building out your team. How did you stay, how did you look at and saying, these are my productized offerings and we stay true to these three? I would imagine there was constant tension around, but we also should do this and we also should do that. Were you, did you ever change your productized offerings? Or okay. I, I know they evolved over time, obviously, but but how did you deal with that kind of tension, especially when some, some new people came into the company who were like, yeah, but I can do this, this, and this, and this too. I think what we did, the, the beauty of what we did was we kept the productized areas pretty vague, right? Like consulting, you can have an audit product, you can have a social media playbook product, you could have a competitive analysis product, all under consult. Same thing with create, same thing with connect. So with create, for instance, when video became extremely important to the algorithms and longer form content was showing to have higher views and, and really perform well, we launched something called branded social programming, which was episodic programs on things like Facebook Watch, IGTV, all of these now defunct things. And it went really, really well. 
and that was a product that was launched in the time the same the same way now with connect right at the time it was just facebook ads and and community management now it encompasses many different networks and influencers these are all products that we didn't have before but are under um, what I would call tent poles of core offerings that we have at Likeable. And so the, the core offerings are evergreen, like those tent poles are, are really evergreen, yeah. but what we offer underneath them is a little bit more specific. That makes a lot of sense. So it's not that you're really creating new offerings, you're creating kind of, I don't know, sub offerings inside. So you're not, Correct. you're not going so wild that you're like, all right, I got to figure out this other product. It's Correct. Hey, I'm picking almost like a different channel or something like inside of those. Those Correct. And if you think about it, there's really nothing that in social media that you couldn't argue could be consulted on, you wouldn't create, or you wouldn't right. connect to your audience. So they were broad enough that they allowed us to create many different products underneath each subset. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we're at this stage where we have we have some people, we're productized, we're transitioning out of founder led sales, you got a couple of people in place. How did you know from the time that that transition's hard enough as it is, how did you know to pour a little fuel on the fire and make this thing go faster? I mean, I think we knew once we productized and saw that it was working, that was when we really just leaned in. Everything we were doing, we did more of to grow as quickly as possible. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan also of it's not always a race, but at the same time, I'm so happy I did it when I did it because you just never know when markets change, things change, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And I took it, I think, as far as I could take it as a social media only agency. And I felt really good about that. And so I, I think we just yeah. continued to do what we could and get as far as we could go until I felt we could do more with a partner. Did you, did you use some kind of measurements to, to identify from a speed perspective? Was it number of deals closed, number of meetings, number of the same deal happening in a specific okay, we had amount of time? A million metrics, a million, they were all over for each one, including likability. But the primary thing that we did was we surveyed every quarter or no, every six months, sorry. Every six months we okay. surveyed our clients and we surveyed our staff. Two different wow. surveys. Do you, are we faster than other agencies that you've worked? Do you feel if you need an answer about in, something intricacy and in social, you know, would you come to us first? Or do you think we could answer it better than anyone else you've worked with? Do you truly enjoy working with us? And then we would do a net promoter score. And the same thing took place with our employees. Do you feel like your peers are fast? Do you feel like we are inspiring and smart? You know, you're working with the smartest and social. Are we a great place to work? And we would measure that and we would publish the results. So that was like really... Like publicly or like internally publicly? Internally, they would be part of how people were measured and they were how people were structured. Yeah. It was part of their review process. It was wow. all of it. And yeah. with our clients, we did share. Definitely. We published our net promoter score always on the website. And we, yeah, I think we did publicly do it. We don't do it anymore. But right. Yes. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting because now you are talking to the two most important pieces, right? You're essentially talking to your product or, or the employees yep. in your company, and then you're yep. actually going out and you're talking to your customers. Ba every six months, I mean, this is, we need to take a pause for a minute, 
focusing on generating new clients and doing all the things that every business owner wants to now say, hey, I am going to work on my business to make sure that I can WD-40, whatever I need to, you know, kind of figure out and dial in. How much time does something like that did you spend to be able to do that? Because it's not simply just like a Qualtrics survey, click send, and you're done. I mean, there's some there's some real thinking oh, behind this. There's, there's a lot. First of all, you have to evaluate where your weak spots are, right? So sometimes it would be speed. Sometimes it would be social thinking. And we would take actions based off of the surveys and based off of the data. And, and it was anonymous, but I always did like follow-up calls. Yeah. If I felt like with clients, I mean, it was a great indicator of if they were going to renew and what the next year was going to be like. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And so we would take it. How much time did it take? A lot. I mean, we did quarterly strategic planning and, and the scores were incorporated into everything that we did. I think the key is when you're leaning in to, to this kind of stuff, you have to really lean into it yeah. and believe it and practice it all the time. You have to hold yourself accountable yeah. to, to these things that you set. Look, looking back on, on, on maybe that specific piece, is there one or two kind of highlights or insights that you gained that you're like, I never would have saw this or I completely missed that, that you can point to? Yes, I think there were a couple. I think speed. I think we, as, so we used to be very, very, very fast because we were scrappy. Right. As we developed this beautiful built out studio and, and creative team and all of this stuff, our work was elevated, but it slowed and we weren't as, scra as scrappy as we once were. And so the question became, how do we keep that level of elevated, beautiful content? This is when we introduced like branded social programming. We're doing programming for Hilton and, you know, high quality stuff with huge film crews, but that's not fast. So how do you evaluate and what do you do for that speed? And that's where we launched something called the Content Creator Network. And we started working with creators to supplement fast content because not all content can be fast. And so I think that was like a key insight that we got. Smartest in social, I think, took a dip when we didn't go fast enough into influencers. We had to catch up. You know, there's lots, lots and lots of things that we missed along the way. And, and the survey allowed us to ask ourselves why and really reflect and take a look sense. at that. I think that was key. That's interesting. I mean, I, I'm one of, one of the things that we always offer is a is a sales audit or a diagnosis yep. kind of product. And yep. every time we have the assessment and the results, every one of our clients is like, "How on earth did you see this? And how did you figure this out?" And it's always, well, sometimes it takes a third party to come in and look at this. You guys were able to actually do it internally, which is even more to your credit because. You got to kind of remove yourself and look at it from a little bit of an unbiased perspective to say, wait a minute, we're not as good at this thing as we really say that we're good at. Like that, that that's yeah. tough. It's hard to do. I mean, I'm sure if we had outside help, we probably would have learned way more. Yeah. But it helped also as we grew when I was less involved in the day to day of the business. Dave and I, and Dave was out of the business. We were able to take sort of a holistic look. We yeah. formed a board, the two of us, and a very trusted advisor who worked for me for a while. Candy Harris was the COO. So she had stepped out into a board role and we looked at the results a lot too and helped guide the team. But I'm sure had we used an outside resource, we would have yeah. learned a lot more. Well, it's one of those, I, I like to say, working on the business versus in the business. Yes. 
Yes, yes. It's it's one of those things. How long did it take you to move from running day to day, selling constantly to more of that board level being able to work mainly on the business as opposed to just constantly plugging the wheel of the business? We started in 2007. I probably worked that way until 2014 or 13, right when I took over as CEO. I spent a lot of time in the business as CEO initially, and then probably by 2015, I was more removed. I was never completely removed. I always felt that it was very important for me to have a touch point with clients. And I always felt that it was important for me to have a touch point with employees, but I was not running the day to day of the business probably after eight years, seven. Well, the reason I ask is because I want, I wanted to highlight that this isn't like a 18 month like sprint. And then you're like, cool, thanks. Now I can just like play golf and smoke cigars and do board related thing. I don't know why that I think of board no, people no, doing but I that. Know, but... I know what you mean. I know yeah. what you mean. I, I was talking to Dave actually earlier today. He's working on a book and I was sharing a story. He asked me something about delegating and, and what was the worst moment? What mistake did I make in delegating? Yeah. And I remembered one moment I had hired a president who I loved and respected very much. And I was fully out, like t- checked out. And one of our largest clients fired us and I had no idea it was coming. And I looked at Dave, I said, do you remember this? I said, it was we were, right after dinner, I got the call and I realized, and they said, oh, you're too small for us. We need to go with someone bigger or whatever. And I just started bawling. And I was like, oh my God, Dave, I just tanked the value of our business. Like I just, I totally screwed up. Like I was too far off. And like, the point of that is I, by the way, I would have done the exact same thing, the exact same way. Having a president allowed me to have my third child. It allowed me a little breathing room, et cetera. But you always have to be present enough to know what's going. You need your finger on the pulse. That that's what I you can't, think. You can't remove yourself from the business no, too I'm far, otherwise things happen. No. Yeah, no, that yeah. makes sense. When you when you look back at at this journey, what were what what was one of the top one, top two best bets that you made that you can equate to what what helped really drive the success and the growth of the business? I definitely, the productization of Content Cubed and the development of the content credit system. And I also think that using Vern Harnish's Rockefeller habits for quarterly strategic planning was really strong. I think if you were to ask me one of the actual highlights of the business, like one of my best moments, it would be when we won the sixth best place to work in New York. We had won quite a few years in a row, but winning something like that, um, as a small agency just really showed that we were able to scale, but still maintain our heart and maintain our care for employees. And to me, that was the most rewarding thing. Well, that's voted on by the employees, right? That's not just yeah. you saying, Hey, this right. is a great place. It's to anonymous. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. That's, I mean, that yeah. speaks a lot. I, I always, I always tell people to look at those types of things because those are the types that it's not just bought by the company that says, Hey, we're the best place to work. Like it right. has to actually be voted right. on. Right. When you talk about mastering the Rockefeller habits, is there, I, I know that, that you're a big believer in that, in that book and you reference that a lot. What is, what, what are some of the top takeaways? I mean, we'll, we'll post it in, in the show notes and, and everyone can, can get that. What, what, what is it that you recommend so much about that book? So it's, I think it actually was renamed Scaling Up. It's by Vern Harnish. The latest edition is called Scaling Up. What I loved about it was the consistency yeah. of having 
a annual and quarterly plan and getting your leadership team together to do that. It helps you remove, be accountable. You're in the business, but you're not so deep. Like it helps you empower your leadership team and gets everybody in the company on board with a strategic direction of the company. There's a level of transparency with scaling up that I really loved yeah. uh, that a lot of companies don't love. Like you're sharing these metrics and a lot of companies don't love that. I found it to be great. Like really, really, it helped our team come together as a unique and interesting company and, and grow. I mean, a lot of our growth is attributed to the, those employees who led and got us there. And so when you're talking about transparency, are you talking about, so you have measurements of all parts of the business, sales, marketing, delivery, all kinds yep. of things, and you're sharing transparently, this is what's going on in the business. We're typically, right, people are like, this is our sales. That's it, right? Yeah. All that people yes, I'll tell you something funny. So I, so you have a strategic plan and your plan has like, okay, here's your quarterly goal. Here's your profit margin goal. Here's your revenue per employee goal. Okay, they recommend that you put it up, okay, on your board. So Dave had it blown up, blown up, huge, on a, in a room, conference room, like a war room, sort of. Yeah. And I had interest from an acquirer. This was right when Dave stepped out of the business. And our margin wasn't yet where we needed to be because we were focused on scaling. It was probably like 10, 15%, something like this. And the person walks into the room and meets with me. And she goes, oh, is this, is this your margin? And I died a thousand deaths. Like I was like, oh my gosh. But that being said, that level of accountability, I think, was what helped me get the margin to where I wanted it to be and the growth to where I want it to be. The public accountability. Now, when I say public, I mean public in our offices. Right. I don't mean yeah. I'm tweeting out, here's our numbers. But that sort of like build in public methodology which I see now actually on Twitter and that kind of stuff, yeah. there is some value to that. But what I loved about Rockefeller Habits was mostly that the whole exact team gets together yeah. and sets the goals together yeah. and sets what's important to accomplish this quarter. Yeah. And it's it's really good. It's a good system. No, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in this too. I mean, I, I think that when everybody understands how the levers work inside the business to ultimately build mm -hmm. this, you know, this big, great machine, everyone yeah. can buy in and then they can, they can yeah. kind of jump in and have skin in the game. So that makes a lot of sense. You me you mentioned acquiring. So let's talk a yes. little bit about one of the things that everybody who has a service-based business is what's the exit strategy here? Yeah. So you've productized, you've transitioned out of founder-led sales, you've kind of started to reinforce parts of the business, we're measuring, you have your exec team. How on earth do you actually get this thing sold? Well, it's pretty simple to get a business sold. If you have good margins and show growth and have a business that's productized, there will be buyers who are interested in you. For me, I was very, very careful and methodical about who I chose. There were lots of people that were interested and likable. I wanted a partner that could take us further faster. I wanted somebody, you know, I, I was relegated to social media marketing. I wanted to expand beyond that. I did not want to invest my own money to do that and was ready to take some money off the table, but be a part of something bigger. I met the founder of 10 Pearls, Imran, who was fantastic and a visionary and an entrepreneur like, and I saw an opportunity. It was a great valuation. It was a great, I, I thought they treated me with immense respect and I had, you know, partnered with a broker to do this. And I had many different, many, many different offers 
And I went with one that really allowed me to still grow with the org, allowed me to get a valuation I thought was more than fair, and really kept likable growing. And that was what I want. I wanted the legacy to continue. I wanted the business to continue. And at the same time, I wanted to know that this chapter of my life in that I was running it and doing the payroll and every bit of it was coming to an end. Yep. You mentioned something interesting. You hired a brokerage. Is this like Mm -hmm. a business broker to be able to, Mm -hmm. to help you sell the business? Yeah, so to, a lot of times when you're looking to sell a business, specifically a services business, I would definitely recommend. I use Barney, which is wearebarney.com. They're great, and they specialize in selling agencies. But yeah, there's lots of business brokers out there, and then there's things like Microacquire, which is now acquire.com. Lots of marketplaces that are out there that can help you do that, but there's also many other ways to go about this. I mean, you can look at finding a strategic acquirer that you are the per- you fit a hole in their business that they really need. Maybe they really need your customer. Maybe they really need your service offering. And then you become a strategic buy. And that is infinitely more valuable because then you're valued on how badly they need you, not just your numbers on yeah. the P&L. No, that's interesting. When you, I think a lot of times people think, hey, I want to sell this. And the first question is, is I don't even know where to get started. Like, do I just start randomly emailing people or it's always about knowing someone to know someone, but it's interesting that the step is at least talk to a broker, right? Talk to a business broker and and figure out what is it that you have no idea to think about. But to your point, margins, growth, and a productized offering, those are, those are some core foundations that to know if you, if you're there or not. Oh, for sure. I mean, you have to know your numbers. And I think ultimately, you know, not just a broker. The thing about this, Alex, is it's no different than sales. Everything you've done to grow your business, reach out to people who you think would acquire you. Say, I'm really impressed by your business. I'd love to get coffee and explore partnerships. Like, it's the same. It's the same exact thing. It's just in a different area, yeah. you know, try partnering first and see how it goes. This isn't If you don't go the broker route and brokers are great, but they take a fee. So yeah. it depends on if you want to try it yourself. And the good thing about brokers is they get you multiple offers. So yeah. there's a benefit to that too. Did you try just to like, go direct before you went to the broker? Job? I was approached a million times ah. directly. And you know, I, did I try to go direct? I did not actively put myself out for sale, but I met with potential acquirers many, many times. So much so that when I partnered with my broker, when I partnered with her, I gave her all of those names. And then if it's somebody that you've met, sometimes you get a break on the fee. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. That's really interesting. Was the, was the plan to always be acquired? Yes. Yes. The plan was not to run this until the end of time. Although honestly, I really could have, I could have put a president in and, and had it run. I could have, if I had to do it again, I could have acquired businesses and taken that risk. I think I was so risk averse. This was our first business that we exited. Yeah. So, and like I said, we, you know, raised three kids off of it. So really it was, I, I was so afraid. And if I had to do it again, I, you know, I'm, I might have acquired businesses because I think it, it can be a great tool. 
it can be really, really great to supercharge and grow at a different level. And you get, you know, exposure to a whole different exec team and you get all kinds of cool stuff. And it's not as expensive, I think, as I thought it was. Once I understood it, it's really not all that expensive. It's It should pay itself back, theoretically, if yeah. you're good at it. Yeah. And so, so, you know, I... There's a lot I learned through that process. There's a lot of a lot of a lot of things I learned in that process that I I might have done differently. Yeah. But I, you know, fortunately I I landed with an amazing acquirer and I'm doing awesome stuff. But yeah, I mean, if I lost some of the fear that I had through that process, wow, imagine what I could have done. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's one of the the things that I pick up from you really the most throughout our entire conversation is just trust your gut a little bit more. I feel like yeah. sometimes people are their own worst enemies and we put up our own roadblocks and we kind of convince ourselves this is too hard or it'll never happen or she'll say no or whatever it is. And the answer is, is that's probably worse in your head than it actually is if you just do it. A hundred percent. The amount of crap that goes on in there <laughs> that can distract you from greatness is immense, at least for me. Yeah. I mean, all day all day is that oh, you're not good enough or oh you don't have enough money for that or oh wh what if what if and the the biggest shift i learned on what ifs i mean th this is just something i'll share it's, it could be totally off topic for your podcast but when i when i sit and i say oh my god what if it all falls to shit right like what if what if oh my god i'm such feel anxiety i just reframe the what if like or with sales what if i now don't close anything this quarter what if i don't what if i i have a, a donut like zero well, what if I have my biggest sales month ever? You know, you just don't know. And so you right. the only thing you can do is do the work and just just really try and quell the voices in your head that might hold you back from doing something great. That's all I would yeah. say. No, I, I'm I'm the same way. I think that as long as you create your plan and you execute your plan and you're like, you know what? If I had the all all the all the chips in the same place these are the decisions that I make and you go do those things and you give yeah. it your best shot. Yeah. The what ifs go away. So yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, this has been fantastic. I want to, uh, I want to, I want to leave the audience with a couple of things. So you mentioned okay. a couple of books, so you can't say either one of those. What would you recommend to entrepreneurs, service-based business, founders, CEOs, people who are are wanting to build these types of businesses or trying to scale right now, any resources or books that you would recommend that they check out, out outside of the Rockefeller one, Scaling Up and Built to Scale? Okay, so first of all, I think the most important thing as a leader is people skills. And so what I would definitely tell you to get is The Art of People, which is my favorite book by Dave Kirpin, my husband. Okay. I think it gives you insight into how to give feedback how to interact with people you work with, how to win deals because of your ability to interact with people. I think people skills are the single most important thing, certainly in a, in a services business. That's one that I would definitely recommend. My other one that I love as you're building a team, Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, beyond one. the best. I love a good, easy read. It took me yeah. like, I don't know, not even a day to read yeah. that book. And yeah. I, uh, Only a weekend read, you can get done. Love Patrick Lencioni's fable books. I, they're easy to read. They're they're simple. And uh, yeah, so I feel like those two will really get you to where you need to go. That's awesome. These are great. Carrie, thank you so much. You're awesome. I love the story. 
I love the way that you tell it. I love all your learnings. You're transparent. It must have been an awesome ride throughout this whole thing. Awesome. And you're and and now you're only getting started with Ten Pearl. So that's off, right. Off yeah, the sky's, the, the sky's the limit with those guys. I love them, and it's been a great match so far. Awesome. Hopefully, you enjoyed the appearance by my dog, who's now quietly sleeping here. So that's good. <laughs> well, Hopefully for, for the uh, the audience, go check out Likeable. Go check out Ten Pearls. If you need any social media help, these are the guys that can help you. Carrie, thank you so much. We'll have to have you on again and see step two of the journey. We'll have to hear how the rest of it goes. I can't wait. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. See ya. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.